and welcome to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast. My name is Sally Nilsson and I'm a psychotherapist, published author, public speaker and mum. I discovered my autism and ADHD aged 56 in March 2021 and having rewritten my life story, I'm on a quest to advocate for neurodivergent community. I hope you enjoy listening to my incredible guests sharing their experiences of autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, Tourette's and OCD. We talk about growing up, education, work and personal stories and how mental health has played its part in shaping lives. Our conversations cover spectrums, traits, challenges, acceptance and successes. So sit back, relax and find out what it means to feel, think and be different in a neurotypical world. So hello and welcome to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast and I'm Sally and today I'm very, very happy to meet with Tahil Javed and uh, I came across... well, we were sort of talking to each other in the background of LinkedIn, and then you kindly invited me on to a meet and greet. And uh, I wasn't ready, and I got all confused. And <laughs> and then and then you put me on there. Well, I was on there, and all of a sudden, I was surrounded by all these amazing psychiatrists mm. from the, the Royal College of Psychiatry, and the fantastic musicians, and you, and everything. <laughs> and um, but it was wonderful and really interesting, and I was so excited to hear that the Royal College of Psychiatry are moving forward in such a positive, positive way within our neurodivergent community. And we can talk a little bit about that, but um, it was a wonderful meeting and I'm so happy to have you on. Um, So thank you so much. And um, what what I'd like to do if I may, is just give me a very, very quick introduction of yourself. (laughs) Anything, just anything you want to say about yourself and really what you do in the area of neurodivergence, please. Okay. Um, Thank you so much for having me over, Sally. It's it's been an honour and a pleasure, honestly. And to have you in that meet and greet session, it was was a great experience for all, all of us as well. And um, it was, I was genuinely happy that everything I said in the meeting about when I thanked everybody that I, I genuinely meant um, that. But coming to the introduction, you know, the only introduction I've ever wanted or I, in, in my ideal world, I would like to introduce myself as human or uh, insan in Urdu or Arabic. And that's the pen name I used when I started a digital journal. But I know the professional aspect demands um, a professional introduction. So in, in that term, i am uh, been in a specialty doctor in psychiatry. Um, I am also the CEO of the Society for Tourette's Autism and Neurodiversity. I've been a member of uh, various local, regional and national um, groups and organizations, committees um, that talk about neurodivergence. And uh, I think in terms of what I do about um, uh, how I advocate about neurodivergence, I think to put it briefly, I think I, I, I would just say that I try to do 
everything and anything in, in my capacity to reach out to people, to tell them, and to basically try to create, or at least play part in creating a more accepting and a more tolerant world, not just in terms of neurodivergence, but in terms of accepting all the differences. I think that's my aim. Yes, and that's a, a great introduction. And when you say all the differences, um, are you um, sort of encompassing, you know, like neurodiversity? So it's not just autism, ADHD, Tourette's and everything else. Are you talking about um, people who have learning difficulties, perhaps mental uh, mental health as well? What, what do you mean um, with everything? I think, uh, Sally, when we talk about an organization or an institute, uh, it, we have a certain limitations in form of the agenda or the goals. So Stan, if you're talking just about the organization in, in, in itself, uh, it stands for the Society for Tourette's Autism and Neurodiversity. Um, so I've had to sort of limit the work in that region or in that perspective. So we, we work for autistic individuals, basically anything that falls under the umbrella of neurodivergence. But to I was just trying to highlight the thought behind Stan and the ideology that, you know, um, this at face, it is about very much about neurodivergence. And that's what we are prioritizing. But in my heart, I want to see a world where everybody can just accept other people for who they are and allow themselves to be their self comfortably as long as they're not being disruptive or disrespectful or causing any harm to themselves or other individuals. Yes. So and I think I that's... And I understand that. And, and the more I learn I, as, I, as I go through my own journey, I hope there's a time when there aren't any terms. You know, I mean, I, yeah. I, I think the labels are really important and I like compartmentalizing yeah. things so I can yeah. understand. And as a psychotherapist, I see patterns and I'm visual. But I hope in the future that we don't even have words like autism or ADHD or Tourette's because people, the world will just understand that, as you said at the beginning, we are all human and we're yeah. all different in different ways and that, you know, people can, you know, support each other. But so thank you very much for that. And of course, I, I'd like to ask you, as I ask all my de um, desks, mm -hmm. no, I don't ask my desks, I ask my guests this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have noticed the difference. Either, <laughs> I know, but I bet my <laughs> listeners will and I don't care because I will, I trip over my words um, quite a lot. That's just part of me. Uh, what is your neurodivergence and do you have any co-occurring conditions to heal? Yeah, um, well, I'm autistic. I have ADHD and I have dyspraxia as well, all formally diagnosed, if that's important. But for me, I don't believe it's, uh, um, I mean, yeah, um, we can get, like you mentioned before, labels help in getting help. But that doesn't mean that they should be mandatory for people to get help. Yeah. You know? Yes, because that way we're missing out on so many people who need help. 
Oh, I, and I and I completely agree. I mean, my my mum passed away last year in July, and actually, only six months before her death, did we know that she was where I got my neurodivergence from. So we had that conversation when she was eighty five years old and I, I just imagine all the millions of people that have come before me and I and I didn't have didn't have a clue until I was 56 so it is important and I think self-diagnosis even the word diagnosis is pathologized it's awareness isn't it it's just an acceptance so um you you'd said to me um that you were formally diagnosed and and I I felt the need to have a formal diagnosis for my autism um, because yeah. I'm, um, I wanted it for status in a way and for my professional, yeah. you know, but my ADHD, I just did my own research and I know yeah. that I'm a combined ADHD. You know, I don't actually mm. need, I don't want meds and I don't need people to, you know, muck around in my head. I know what I am. What was it like for you? What was that journey like for you um, for assessment and diagnosis? And then I want to talk about post-diagnosis because that's so important. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I've been, there, there isn't a single word or an emotion that I can associate to the journey, that it, it was good, it was bad, it was difficult, but, or it was, uh, you know, I don't think I can put it into words, to be honest, because there was so much to it. Yeah. But in if you're asking in terms of just the diagnosis itself and the assessment process, I've been very lucky in terms of um, that because um, I I would not have had an idea at all. I would not even have considered the remote possibility. It was, uh, and, and that's, unfortunately, that's most of the doctors today. Because, um, you know, and it's I, I, it's nobody's fault or, you know, it's not that um, we're not making effort to learn or we have far, um, we're lacking knowledge. It's just that uh, we, we forget that at the end of the day, we're all humans. And humans forget science. What humans remember are the stories. And... So science, in terms of science, we, we have to be limited. We have to restrict our knowledge so that we can, we can um, pick up things. But then that sets quite limit, um, a lot of limitations on how we view things. So for many doctors and like we follow rules and guidelines and criteria. And so for me, um, autism and ADHD was about young boys who are disruptive or shouting or who can't, um, you know, basically whatever you see in um, stereotypical movies or stereotypical portrayal of uh, autism and ADHD. That was my opinion. I knew the statistics, I knew the um, criterion, but what I did not know was the, the true meaning of difficulty in social communication, difficulty in social interactions, um, and and you know what what those terms meant in in their truest sense, because we often tend to 
um, confuse social difficulty or social communication with the ability to verbalize or with the ability to socialize, whereas they, they're totally different things. So I am very verbal. I can express and speak volumes. Sometimes I've had to be stopped, yes. you know, but it doesn't mean that I can communicate effectively because even after writing paragraphs and trying my best and thinking that I've completely and eloquently conveyed my message, I was missing on the basics. So um, my, in terms of, if you're talking about, if I talk about my journey, I think um, everything was set into motion, sort of, when I came into the UK, it was a big change for me, in a lot of ways. How old were you, Tahil, when you came over? Well, um, I was 26. Oh, okay, so you're <laughs> well into adulthood, yeah. Carry on, yes. Yeah. Yes. So um, after that, if it's if it's just that um, a lot of things had been going on in the year before as well, and soon after coming to the UK, I came. I actually came during the middle of the pandemic uh, in 2020. So I um, after about two or three months in the UK, I contracted COVID and which turned into long covid oh no I'm, I'm sorry is your screen frozen okay sorry i thought your screen was frozen sorry no, it's okay it's all right let's <laughs> just carry on we don't need to stop that that's fine so you had yeah. covid and are oh, you poor thing you come over here and not yeah. only, you know <laughs> and uh, can i ask you um you know, how bad did you get it? Because in 2020, people were getting COVID really yeah. badly and, and, you know, being hospitalized. And then you're, you know, what, what was your illness and then long COVID like for you? Well, it was not great, to be honest. It was, it was, um, it was bad. Uh, because one thing was that um, the actual symptoms and the shock of it, Second thing was that I am an asthmatic as well. So I, I believe that also had to play a part in it. And I think the most important thing was that I was not able to tell my family. I live on my own and my family is uh, back in Pakistan. So I could not really tell them about what was going on. Because and you are they... on your own over here to hail? Yes. Oh, <laughs> gosh. <laughs> Oh, yeah, how hard. It's, no, it's, um, yeah, it was hard at that time because, uh, you know, it was, in my head, it would be like, you know, setting them on fire and locking them in a the room if I would have told them at that time. Yes. Um, because uh, before coming here, I was working in a COVID unit in Pakistan as well. And um, two of my colleagues had passed away who were younger than me. So... That my family were very scared as well. So yeah. obviously, uh, but when the I think the difficult part started after I had apparently recovered, like after the two weeks, yes, isolation time. I when I got back to work, when I tried to work, I I wasn't able 
to do it you know i wasn't able to walk maybe even 10 or 15 steps i was so tired i was having random symptoms totally random unrelated symptoms and i could not work anymore so it was a big uh, it was a big shock for me in terms that my work has been my passion and my work has been also sort of an outlet so i was not working in psychiatry before actually i was working in um you know critical care surgery medicine combined so did that scare you even more because there's something about being a doctor when you get yes. ill that yes you've got too much information you know too much about it you know how your lungs are working you know that you're asthmatic you you know all these things um how did it affect you mentally i think i was in denial to be honest i was in Were you denial you're trying to be really brave because you're on your own away from your parents and you just you, you had to get through it on your own to, to be honest um i was not intentionally trying to be brave i just did not want to entertain the possibility that you know i was not able to perform or work anymore mm-hmm. so yeah that was a big big thing for me because if if um, i mean i uh, i was on my own i had to pay the bills and everything that um the you know the financial aspect of it was also there because um, you know the sick pay is if if you take a month off if it's, it's funny the month that took off later it was around 300 pounds which is almost funny for for a month so th- i think that also had to had to play an important part but um long story short I, and i was in yorkshire at that time um it it got to the point where uh, my stats had started dropping and all it, it got pretty bad so i had to come to birmingham to the only person i trusted in the uk and i was very well taken care of um but i think that's the shock of the entire process that was uh, and and how my parents found out during that journey um it was probably the first meltdown phase i ever experienced um meltdown like, yeah and and uh, for you because a meltdown is a very um a unique and sort of tailor made yeah. experience yeah. for each person you know same yeah. shutdown same as um, burnout and yeah. so for you um how did the meltdown manifest itself for you to heal well uh in all honesty selly it was it was bad in it was bad in a way that um so i i was pretty sick and i was not planning on actively telling my parents um but my friends to a few of my friends knew so i i had asked they, they were basically asking me to tell my parents i i asked some time that you know i need some time I'll, i'll i'll tell them but just give me some time but obviously um the 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 condition i was in at that time they were also scared um and uh, my my parents found out and when they found out i freaked and panicked and i literally yeah. i literally um 
you know, I came to Birmingham and I was in, I, I don't even remember the journey, uh, you know, in, in whole, to be honest, Sally. I, I just, Did you dissociate, do you think? Probably, because I did not know where I was going. Like, I knew the address because it was written. So I just focused on that. But it was the first time that I was totally lost in my head. So yes. I started crying in the train. And uh, I still remember there was a young young boy who was looking at me and he panicked. And he called the conductor and um, then somebody came and I, I was crying by that time and somebody asked me that what's what's happening and I said I want to go back home Aww. and he said where's home and I said Pakistan so no it was funny because he was confused he said so are you planning to go back to Pakistan on a train and I, I said no I want to I showed him that I want to go here and then I think um, the, the staff was amazing I think I, I believe it was cross-country that they were amazing uh, so they basically, you know, transported me, uh, escorted me from station to station. There were about three changes. I I had gotten off at two wrong stops, but they made sure that I got to the station oh. I was supposed to get off at. And so, yeah, but after I came to Birmingham, the person I came to was absolutely brilliant with how... Um, you know, I was cared for, and so that yeah, I was able to you know pass through that phase. But after that, I sort of from meltdown to I went into a shutdown mode. Yes. Again, I think it's a very individualized experience, and I believe we need to talk more about it because um, again, shutdown for for me if you would have told me at that time that you are in a shutdown phase, I would have denied it. <laughs> because in my head at that time, shutdown would have meant that, you know, a person totally hiding somewhere or just, you know, sh shutting yes. down. But shutting in reality, away. yeah, shutting away. So in what, reality, what did you do in your shutdown? So in my shutdown, it was more like, my body was physically shutting down. Yeah. So I was having all physical symptoms. And then I, for the first time in my life, I believe, I had totally left my phone. So I was from a person who basically used to have panic, uh, you know, um, separation anxiety if I was away from my phone. From that person, I went to somebody who did not even want to look at the phone. So... I was not talking to anybody, like uh, not my parents, not my friends, nobody at all. Yeah. And I felt in a safe space. There was a very limited uh, number of people I was interacting with who were physically there, this two or three. And in that safe space, I was functioning okay. I mean, I was playing card games, 
I was watching TV, I was talking, I was doing everything. But a part of me had totally shut down. A part that, you know, basically what I would call the adult part. (laughs) And that, again, though, that, you know, it doesn't that, you know, I mean, I'm I'm talking to somebody who's a doctor of the mind as well. But, you know, that seems like dissociation as well. You know, I've had a couple of people on the podcast who one lady spent 10 years in, a, in that sort of state. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like your body, it's almost like some something like um, Blade Runner or something like that. You know, you're, you're, like, you're almost like a robot, like, like a, yeah. an altered state. You're, you're being human, you're doing human things, you're playing cards, you're eating food, you're waking and sleeping, but... You're not there. Yeah. It I was in, yeah, I was in me. Let's yeah. put it that way. I was in me in in many ways. In many ways. And um it was the first time probably I'd started experiencing social anxiety as well, to a level that I was absolutely it got worse to the point that I was absolutely terrified of going out on my own. And, having gone uh, through what you went through on the train, though, um, no. having gone through the COVID and everything else, and and that train journey, and and coming I, over from Pakistan not that long ago, I mean, it's hardly surprising. I mean, I I can't. There's not one thing that I can uh, put my hand on no. that. Okay, this is the reason. It was a, it was a mixture of thing. I think I was, um, I I tried to go to work, go back to work two or three times, but I had to come back from work, like uh, taking um, sick leave because I just couldn't. Yeah. And I was just freezing and which is very scary for me. And I was having these weird, weird physical symptoms that are very hard to explain or to even, you know, now everything has started to make a little more sense but at that time it was very confusing uh, for me and it would have been for the doctors as well Uh, but I think everything combined uh, put me into that social that that triggered social anxiety. Can I ask Um, you to heal Um, I just want to make sure that um, you know you don't need to worry about this but I'm just keeping an eye on the time looking at the questions and make sure that we get anything but I don't want to move on until I ask you the really important question from when that happened to now um, you know when did you feel as though you sort of came back into your body and that you were able to live a, a, a healthy life and feel like yourself again more um i think that's a very subjective question yes um so basically um, during that phase after a lot of things and uh, it was actually an interestingly a psychologist i met by chance who pointed it out that i might have adhd initially i dismissed it but long story short I was diagnosed with ADHD first and during the assessment it was pointed out that I might have autism Um, I did not pursue it actively at that time but later on I did and it wasn't uh, so in my head I was thinking that I've processed it it was a lot of processing to do yes 
but i think it wasn't until after many months later um that i actually you know came back to myself maybe i haven't yes. really come back to myself <laughs> or maybe this was me all along um, yes yeah but the thing is you know <laughs> I, i don't know what um the listeners will um understand with you saying that but i do understand because, yes. Um, yes the reason i understand is for my i i look at the similarities and there are differences there yeah. are similarities but i went through 56 years of thinking i was mentally yeah. ill um yes. 56 years of not understanding why people were making that face at me when exactly. i said words yes and not understanding why they were when when i was getting a troubled attention because of a look i'd made i felt perfectly all right inside my body but somebody <laughs> else decided to punish me because of how i looked and 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 then after having children and feeling like i'm in a bubble and just the world is careering on and no i no idea but then you get diagnosed and you you suddenly start making sense and you you, you know yes. go through it but i don't want to run before we can walk because i guess um what i'd like to ask really is you know because this will lead on to this wonderful um this three part article about your life um which i would really like you to put in the link because it was you know in the show notes afterwards because i just felt as i was walking <laughs> with you in your life and you were in pakistan and i'm here but it was the same story <laughs> but um, i i would love to ask you you know what what was it like um for you growing up in your family and and how was school for you and just tell me about family life and about the about education for you to heal um in all honesty apparently by all all standards pretty pretty regular but if you dig into details it was uh it was different had i been asked before about my school life before the diagnosis or before i got to know myself i would have uh, i would have told you that i didn't i had those were the uh, those were absolutely good years and i was very happy and um now <laughs> and i was but the thing is you know that's that's because i could not tell that what was happening was bullying so um oh, you know, know like... you mean i know what you mean <laughs> you think you think that it's normal but when you look back in hindsight and you think oh my god that shouldn't have been happening you know <laughs> let alone normal i had these um i don't know where those thoughts and ideas came from but you know like uh, when when people asked me for lunch or took my i i remember once somebody took my lunch and you know after that i actually started offering my lunch to everybody yes, yes, yes. because i in my head sharing food was a sign of endearment yeah. so yeah. while i was giving away my food and being hungry <laughs> in my head it was like um, i was making friends and i was being loved and liked and accepted so that's was um, in in retrospect now yes but um i think i was 
I was um, a very timid, not not timid. I was um, I was a what parents would call a star child. A what? So a star child. So I was star very child. Yeah, I was very complacent. I did not demand for anything. I would listen and follow instructions. I would, you know, I, I would. I was not a troublemaker at all. I, I did well in studies, but in now I've learned that all my life I thought that you know why did not why didn't my peers like me and teachers and parents of my best friend like me and I only had one or two friends. Why did others hate me? Now I know why, <laughs> because you know. The, the the problem is that being autistic is it's about things you do with a good intent that that turn out to be bad. Can I just so, say at that point, because with my ADHD brain, if I don't say it, I'll forget it. And yeah. it and and it's so good for our listeners to be able to see what happened the equivalent of in their life. And when you were saying about you were giving your lunch and it was endearing and and that's what you did and you like to do it what I did is I played the fool I was a mimic I was an actress I was could tell funny stories make silly faces jump around and do all these things and so I played the fool and people thought it was hilarious and they would mm -hmm. almost treat me like a monkey in a way they would say Sally yeah. Sally come over here and perform basically earlier and perform do that thing that you did and i had no idea so i'd be performing all over the place and make friends and they and i thought all oh, these people like me they think i'm really good because i'm so funny and i'm making them laugh and and what a great thing but i was never invited over i yeah. never went to parties i um i i wasn't in the group i would just yeah. flit from group to group doing my little show <laughs> everyone thought it was great and patting me on the head and everything else and my whole life was like that and and yeah. so I know what you mean did that carry on did that carry on throughout your life in a similar way that sort of behavior unfortunately not I've been very blessed in terms of um, people I who 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 became my friends even even as a child uh, so I'd I'd do do friends um and then from fifth grade onward, I had, a, I had one best friend and then all levels, four friends. And even in college, so I, I found people who, who were good friends in all, in all ways. So uh, perhaps that's why I was so shielded and so uh, protected that I'd never, I never realized that I would have this is me. I was, in all honesty, uh, Sally, I was very overconfident about myself and how I was perceived. Because my, obviously, the, that close circle of my friends, they, they never made me feel different or weird or, you know, anything. So I did not realize how other people would be perceiving it or how other people can take it in wrong ways. Because those were the only people I interacted with. Uh, in fact, after the diagnosis, I asked one of my friends that, you know, 
why didn't you tell me before that I talked so much or I so you know I could <laughs> I could pick it up in their tones or something but nobody ever actually said that to me so I asked them later on a lot of questions and they said some of the answers were funny some were just sad and I just wished you know that my friends would have mentioned it or told me you know but because why, I actually, maybe I mean you know looking back at your friends I don't know if you still have them now were any I of do. your other friends neurodivergent because you know we do have a bit of a magnet don't we we draw <laughs> other little aliens around us and yes. they're all neurotypical or were were some of them um wired differently well I for three of them I can say with almost a certainty that they're neurodivergent I haven't, I just pitched in an idea to one of them though. Um, but I, I think I, I would want them to find it on their own because everybody's journey is different. And uh, things that I would, they might not, most of them are doctors. So there's a lot of neurodivergence <laughs> yes, you know, but that? unfortunately, when we were talking about doctors, um, there's a certain rigidity that yeah. comes with um, with medicine, I suppose. So I think um, maybe I'm 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 sort of scared to tell them directly. Well, because... I mean, it's horrendous, really, because you know I. Uh, people called me Mad Sally, and um, I suppose I was gaslighted quite a lot. And I just thought, well, okay, I'm mad, so I'm just going to be mad. But then when I when I was diagnosed, um, I did start looking around my my world, and I and and I can point out, I, I'm sorry, but all the research <laughs> I've done over the last two years, hundreds and hundreds yeah. of hours of it. I can point out a few, <laughs> but, but I'm not going to say anything because I did try once and I got into big trouble. But um, just um, tell me a little bit, um, Tahil, about um, your family life. I, I was particularly, you know, in the article that you're going to give me the link for, you, yeah. you, you spoke about your mum and, and, and yeah. are you happy just to talk about her a little bit? Um, yeah, it's 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 awkward talking about my mom because you know uh Sally I think we're very different in terms of uh what we consider personal and how much we let out people call us oversharers sometimes yeah. but I think it's again a difference in how we um you know my those things so people know many things about me that they shouldn't <laughs> Yeah. But uh, what I wrote in the article was, uh, honestly, I most of the things I'd never told anyone before, because it was, I thought that would make me vulnerable. Uh, but I, I I felt that I had to do it because people need to know um, that the differences. Talking about my mom, I think, uh, our relationship has always been multidimensional. Yeah. And I just, I am pretty sure she's on the spectrum as well. So it's just that um, I, I just wish either one of us would have voiced it out. 
yeah. what what we needed from each other mostly me because uh, i think i've been very um I, i've always held myself back in terms of what i needed what i wanted and perhaps the sad part is that those were the things that were the easiest ones so i made both my and my mom's life quite difficult by holding back like yeah so yeah so i would my i think for every emotion i could not express my or, or whether it was pain or hunger or anything at all my go to thing was tummy ache so <laughs> the yeah. funny part was uh, during the assessment um, my mom actually mentioned it that i used to have a lot of tummy aches <laughs> and it it made me that you would have done though because that's a fine <laughs> flight response isn't it no no i i perfectly remember that i did not have tummy aches <laughs> <laughs> but it's it is so sad um and it's it, you go into more you go into more detail and of course we just don't have the time to do it all but it's in the article but yeah when yeah. when i wrote the article when i read the article i i felt quite sad i did have a tear because my mom's not here anymore and and i'm not going to go around with guilt but it's just um some sadness my yeah. mom used to touch me very softly yeah. on my yeah. arm or on my hair or, or somewhere on me she used to touch me very softly yeah. and i could not bear it i could not bear that feeling it was like there were ants crawling on me and i hated it it made me want to vomit it made me want to hit and scream and i just couldn't bear it and and it made me really angry and almost like i hated my mom why did she have to touch me like that but my dad would give me a great big bear hug and give me, and really hold on to me and cuddle me and 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 be like that yeah. i wish i'd known that that was to do with autism i wish i'd known that it was that yeah. and then i and then i could have handled it better because i never let my mom get anywhere near me because i couldn't bear her touching me and that was a sensory thing and 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 actually it affected so much about our relationship and 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 it was only the last 2 years together that i let her cuddle me and i didn't mind if she did it and then the last year i didn't mind either but all those years things yeah. could have been different it's a bit sad isn't it looking back yeah i'm i'm, I'm so sorry to hear about your mom sally and i i totally get that i totally understand that because uh, i think uh, you know it's it's difficult to explain because on one hand it's like you mentioned there are certain sensory needs but on other hand i think we're very specific in terms of how we want people to show affection and i think it's it's categorized in our heads uh like like i mentioned in the article so my head and my hair have always been off limits for everybody yeah basically that those the, that was just for my grandma with in terms of my mom i think she my mom you know she used to touch my hand or nose or something and i i was i i think i was rude even now i am very rude when whenever she tries to do that because 
it just bothers me and i think um i don't really know how to and i'm um, just hearing you made me realize that i've i've never really been like you know that been close to that mom my mom physically in in a way like i i love hugs and i love cuddles but when it comes to my mom it's just i just am very very specific i somehow. know <laughs> Oh my God! I I know. I'm sorry. I keep saying, "Oh my God!" from all our religious people like that. So, thank you so much for that. And uh, oh, daughters and mums. But uh, <laughs> and then you know we fast forward, and you know you went through education, and you you know you became a doctor. But the thing is, is that I, I'm so interested about um, what you do for the neurodivergent community. and you were telling me about stand um the society yeah. of tourettes um autism and neurodivergence or neurodiversity yeah. and um it's so needed and there's some really really good people who are involved and, and you do need some of the big guns to to sort of get things going but tell me uh, what do you want what do you want stand to do how can people find out about it and how can stand benefit um people with a different neurotype okay the the there are three questions you asked which are equally important and i'm very passionate to answer all of them so um bear with me if i get distracted but the first question you asked was um what is stand and how i think i briefly hit on how it started um well you know sally the world of neurodivergence is is evolving so rapidly that from last year to this year um we we came we we we're learning as we're growing so when i when stan was registered as a as a cic as a charity uh at that time the concept of neurodiversity we, we were not very um or, or I, i should say i was not very accustomed to the language so the um, neuro now the organi- the name of organization is grammatically i believe incorrect but um neurodivergence should be the word that would um use for n but in general i think stand stands for everything that's in the name yes <laughs> and and uh, it's initially uh, we started off as a group of doctors but the aim and idea was um to promote awareness about neurodivergence and how these conditions can present in different people and different genders to everybody and that's that was the reason uh we pro- uh, we we tried together everybody together from different fields and uh we have members who are from all sorts of fields you could name because i did not want to you know most of the neurodivergent people have been have felt excluded most of their life And, and which different uh, areas did they come from to give me some so, examples yeah. of our listeners so examples. so amongst our members we have therapists we have psychologists we have painters artists 
people from the IT, we have policy makers, we, we even have journalists and some, some officials, we have professors and plumbers. Excellent. <laughs> and everybody, basically everybody. And, you know, that's some, I, I've been, um, I've been asked many times to keep it inclusive but uh, sorry exclusive yes. uh, to doctors to a, or to a certain group and i i get the idea but for me i i believe that most of the neurodivergent people have been um, excluded all their life so creating a society that would exclude certain people and include certain people would kill the point of it but we are a paradox yes. aren't we but it goes back yes. to what you were saying especially when you're autistic and adhd but it goes yes. back to um yeah. what you were saying um i can't remember what you're saying now yeah but, it, but about doctors being you know they're they're kind of in denial they're stiff they're yeah you know they they yeah. know that they're neurodivergent but they yeah don't want anybody else to know about it you know, it's about <laughs> exactly the, that's so they, the change isn't it within the medical profession because it's, it's, they're the people that we want to help us it's it's both sad and it puts me in in a lot of uncomfortable situations Sally, because you know um majority of the members are junior doctors and uh, mostly from um, um, you know, um, who, who brown or black or who are from ethnic minorities, basically. Yeah. yeah. And you know, and then are are people who are very, um, you, you could say, as high guns or 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 you know, high ranking, yes. if you if that was it. So most of them are very scared to come out or they're in hiding. Yes. Yeah. Let, let's put it that way. So whenever I've had to talk about members, and they, they're scared to the point that they wouldn't even comment or, you know, um, display any associations publicly. And I totally respect their privacy and their choice. Uh, but it's funny for it gets funny for me sometimes because when I have to say, okay, we have this many members, and then people ask me, okay, where are they? <laughs> And yes. it's like, okay, what do I show them? That, that's the conversation we have a funny because but isn't you know, it funny though? Because within um the psychotherapeutic yeah. coaching, counseling, psychotherapy, yes. yes, and play therapy and, and music therapy, it, it's not like that. I mean, as soon as I discovered I was autistic and ADHD, yeah. I came out immediately. I changed yeah. all my website. And I started seeing neurodivergent clients. Yes. But the thing is, we still are beholden to our membership bodies. Yes. We can still yeah. get struck off. We still yes. have that, but we don't have that hierarchy in the same way. And, and we're so desperate to help people I, that really, you know, I, I hope I, I hope it I do hope it changes. Yeah, and, I do. And what I, is the future for Stan? What what do you want to see Stan doing? So um, in terms of if you if you would like me to talk about what we've done so far yes, and please. what we're planning. So uh, so far we've uh, we've we've able uh, we've, we've been able to gather together a team of 
people uh, who who are working on multiple projects at the same time. So we have different, um, let's say, um, departments. So one is the Department of Education or Training. So we are in process of collaborating with different uh, societies and different individuals uh, to create a workshop or a training element i hope i'm not giving away uh, too much yeah. but it is something like uh, what what basic life support but for uh, autistic individuals we're starting with autism and uh, eventually we'll move towards all of the conditions so when i say basic life support it doesn't mean in literal terms but can get literal sometimes but the idea is like you know the if you've attended the basic life support course so people from university students or college students to doctors and consultants it's everybody can attend that you know, oh, I'm everybody, hand up, please. Hand up. Yes, <laughs> everybody can uh, attend that, and everybody, um, you know, can take something away from it, and something that uh, that can give people basic skills to um, communicate with and to understand how a neurodivergent or an autistic mind works, and to yeah, be able and to support. There's not that. enough out there because. Yeah. I'm doing it in the moment to heal. I am on yeah. the computer. I'm trying to find training courses. Yeah. A, it has to be run by a neurodivergent person. Yes. That's, that's very important. Exactly. Because I'm sorry, you, you're not going to get it unless you're neurodivergent. Yes. And it needs to, to uh, understand, this, you know, because the spectrum is this, so big and the traits are so different. Exactly. And, and the second barrier I found was the costs of it. So, the yeah. problem is like if you want to make something inclusive, we have to consider people coming from all sorts of backgrounds. Nobody, I, I don't think many people can afford to pay hundreds of pounds no. to attend, a, especially junior doctors or and, and we, if we keep the costs high, um, it means that we are um, automatically excluding a major proportion. Uh, so what we are trying to do is to create something that's free of cost essentially i know it's a big claim to make but i well, that, give and, you and that, my word yeah um, and i'm very that very pleased with that because <laughs> um, i think as the stigma is dropping as there's so much interest as it's um neurodivergence in all its forms is going on the television there's celebrities there's scientists there's people all over the world yes we need good training courses quickly yes um, with you know but that they're, they're good quality that aren't too long I don't want to be a PhD or a doctor yes. I just want some good stuff now I'm looking at the time and there is a whole area that I want to talk to you about yes. but I'm not going to do it in five minutes I'm going to bring you back if I may because yes. I think what might be really really nice would be to have a um, podcast with play therapy and music therapy yeah definitely I think and, that's and too and and we'll talk about both of those in a whole podcast because I I've just recently been to the Lego convention and I love <laughs> Lego myself yes. I've got I, I have a number of instruments that I can't play but I love instruments so there's a whole <laughs> subject there and I, I'll have you back for that but what I would love to do please is I'd very much like to ask you the question that I ask all my guests it is a big question but um I would very much like it if it's at all possible to make it about five minutes please 
and it's this and it's um to heal how would you like to see positive change at home at school and in the workplace to help all neurodivergent people be included and thrive as valuable members of society i think sally it all comes down to education and awareness that's the basic we need to start from the basics yeah and i think uh, what i'm particularly keen on targeting is the media because like i said in the beginning it's not the science but the stories that people remember yes so that's my uh, area of interest we've also been uh, getting in touch with various bodies um to create to to get a group of people together like real faces of neurodivergence um people heroes people can real life heroes people can look up to and see and quote yes not so um i think in terms of acceptance education that's what i see i i can i i aim that one day i'd like to see that you know there's everybody knows what neurodivergence says everybody knows that um basically i don't ever want anybody to be questioned um or given that look or be, be told that oh you don't look autistic yeah, i want yeah. people to know that there is no face there's no look that associated that's associated with autism or neurodivergence it's a it's a spectrum for a reason yes and a radial one and uh, i think that's that's what i see and i i believe that if we work together all of us together keeping our personal interests and egos aside i think we can make a difference because it's like uh, unfortunately uh, sometimes Uh, it's it's human nature to get tangled up in in specific goals in certain areas uh, but what i see is that if if everybody comes together towards a, a one goal i think it's it would be very easier uh, very easy to achieve it and it would be quick i know we i know people are doing amazing work in terms of research and yes uh we are we are looking into it as well but i know but i'm also aware that it would take a certain number of years for you know for the scientific community to be more accepting of the changes for dsm and icd to change their criteria um which would be the aim eventually or to change the language first of all because it's still referred as autism spectrum disorder whereas we know yes. that we we like to call it autism spectrum condition that's right so starting with that uh, would be good but i know it would take time but meanwhile it was not possible uh, for me sally to just sit and wait i have seen people suffer and lose their life just because yeah. they could not get help in time and i personally i cannot allow that to happen if i may so i want to do everything and anything in my capacity and to 
any, you know, I, I, I am ready to do anything for the cause, basically. Because I know, and I know you, yeah. and, and it comes over so genuinely, and 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 you're so you are so authentic, and you know, I, for me, it happened. You know, I found out last March, and I was doing a little bit of research before, but I haven't stopped since then. Yeah. And this podcast, um, we're coming to the end of series two, mm -hmm. and I don't know if there will how many series, probably <laughs> not that many. I don't, I don't pay my guests. I don't get paid for it. I don't want to. This is, yes. this is a platform so that people can share their bits. And I, yes. and what I, what I just hope is that together, everybody yes. who wants to be part of this culture yes. of humans um, yes. who, you know, just the doctors and the medical side, it's got to work from the inside out and, yes. and be built. But Tahil, I am so, so grateful for you to come on no. to the podcast today. Honestly, Sally, what you mentioned is it's just echoed um, my thoughts about everybody. Like, you know, it's it's people like you um, and, and the uh, senior officials of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. I must, I, I must praise them uh, here again because, you know, it's it's... Nobody, you know, the meeting you attended on 22nd of February, I, I mentioned that over there and I'd like to mention it again over here. Not a single one of the attendees was or speakers were paid. And, you know, the celebrities, they, they get paid in millions, Sally. Yeah. Just for shows. And the fact that they came, everybody gathered together purely for the cause, not for the you know any any personal gains or promotions it it's it didn't um it was a proof that people want to help out people want to make a difference it's just about reaching out to them it's just about putting things in place and i think that's what all of us together are trying to do and and we will do. we we leave our egos aside we don't need yes. those we just you know we, no fighting, just yeah. love and support for, for our fellow humans. And <laughs> look, you know, please, um, it, I really I hope you have a wonderful spring and summer and I will get you back. Um, I think there <laughs> probably will be a few more podcasts, but I would like to get you back to talk music. Um, yeah, it's, it's very close to your heart. It's close to mine. But for definitely. now, um, I, I just want to say... Thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you for coming on and we'll keep talking. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having me, Sally. Thank you. You're very well. It was really nice. Bye-bye, Tahir. Bye, Sally. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast. Links and resources will be at the end in the show notes. I very much look forward to meeting you again. Thanks for listening. Bye.